This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Tom Wright, all the way from the UK. And apparently live in his study, uh, I, uh, you know, I get asked, Tom, sometimes uh, whether I've read all the books in my library, and I reply, <laughs> some of them twice. So, uh, <laughs> um, but we really do appreciate you coming and being a part of a part of our podcast today and helping us think through the Book of Romans. Thank you very much. You know, Umberto Eco, the, the Italian philosopher and novelist, he said when people ask him, have you read all these books? He says, no, these are the ones I have to read this month. The other ones are upstairs. <laughs> and so, it's a great line. I bequeath it to you if you need it. Okay, that's good. Well, it gives me an alternative answer when I can use because I do get the question sure. more than once. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. So so my opening question is something I always ask when we uh, interview someone for the first time, and that is, how did a nice chap like you get in a gig like this? <laughs> well, uh, I, I grew up in a, an ordinary middle-class, middle-of-the-road Anglican family in the north of England, and a lot of my male relatives were clergy. My mother's father was clergy. Uh, my godfather, who was a cousin of my mother's, was clergy. Um, we, we were in church every Sunday. It wasn't particularly either evangelical or Anglo-Catholic or anything. It was just kind of ordinary English Anglican, quite low-key, but, but nevertheless, you were expected to show up and we said prayers before bed and all that stuff and sang hymns around the piano on a Sunday afternoon. And th this was normal kind of 1950s um, Middle English piety, I guess. And within that context, when um, at quite an early age, I think maybe seven or eight, um, I was aware that what I really wanted to do with my life was to do what my grandfather was doing, which was to be running a parish and, and preaching sermons and taking services. And I didn't really know very much about what else clergy did, but I just thought that's, that's a great life. I'd like to be doing that. And there were twists and turns along the way. Um, and at that stage, I had no idea that there was such a thing as academic theology. I wouldn't have known what that could have been about. Um, but when I then, in my late teens, ran into philosophy and theology properly, uh, oh my, I knew that that was the particular direction that my kind of ministry was going to be going in, though I, I never wanted to leave the vocation to be a pastor and to be leading in worship and so on. And so I've managed through twists and turns, as I say, to combine the two over the years, much to the uh, uh, much taxing for my poor wife and family who've had to move house and move job and move place and so on. But that's, that's so, so it started very early and in quite an ordinary way. Only when I was a bishop and helping others towards ordination did I realize that actually knowing that you were called to ministry at the age of seven or eight is actually quite unusual. Most people, it's a bit later than that. Yeah, nine or me, ten. Goes, goes, yeah, well, nine <laughs> or ten, or, or actually in many cases, 20, 30, 40, right, or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, so that's where it all began. That's great. 
right. And and so in your education, your theological education, you said you became aware of academic education as you hit philosophy and other things. Walk us a little bit through that background. Well, yeah, I I always enjoyed the classics at school, Greek and Roman classics, language and literature. I'd done Latin from the age of eight because in my school system, that's what we did. And I started Greek at the age of 13, um, which was a bit late. I was in a class that had already done two years, so I had quite a bit of catching up to do. But uh, it was because when I was about, I think, 11 or 12, uh, a schoolmaster who I trusted had asked me one day quite casually, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I'd said, actually, I'm going to be ordained. And he had immediately reacted very positively and said, that's wonderful because you have to get to know the classical world and study the New Testament and learn Greek and all that stuff. I remember thinking, yes, that's, that sounds great. So I was diving into the classics and then got fascinated by the early Roman Empire, particularly, which I was doing studying at school. And then I was fortunate enough in coming to Oxford to be able to study philosophy and ancient history, which is the the, the main classics degree at Oxford to this day. And uh, I was as excited by the philosophy, which was new to me then, more or less, as I was by the theology. I'd done a bit of philosophy at school, not that much. Um, uh, but uh, the, the philosophy and the ancient history were my first degree. And then I did theology as a second bachelor's degree. So I had the two BAs, one after the other. And having plunged into the ancient history and philosophy, I then found the whole thing rushing together when I was studying theology and particularly studying the New Testament, which I quickly realized was was the thing I really wanted to do. And I always intended to study the New Testament's use of the old, because I didn't want to lose touch with either Testament, and that seemed to be a good way of doing it. And so I picked on Romans, having talked to my uh, professor, George Caird, he became my professor after that conversation, to say, what should I be doing for my doctorate? Mm. Um, We agreed that if I wanted to study the use of the Old Testament in the New, then Romans was a pretty good place to start. So that was 50-some years ago, and after all these years, I just keep coming back to it. Yeah, I don't know how that works. I, my my <laughs> my own study at Aberdeen started with the use of the Old Testament and the New in Luke Acts yep. for Christology. So, um, I, yep. and yep. for all the same reasons, basically to keep yep. the testaments together and linked. So, very much ap- uh, uh, appreciated. Tell us a little bit about George Carrot as a supervisor. Uh, oh, George George Caird was was uh, an old fashioned English gentleman. I mean, Scottish gentleman actually he had quite a Scots accent. He was um, uh, he, he was kind in a really uh, rather uh, sharp way. He said to me um, when we first met after the initial conversation, he said, "Well, um, go away and write something, and then we'll talk about it." Which is, I now know, a very scary thing to say to uh, a beginning doctoral. student. And um, so I spent um, about eight or 10 weeks trying to write a paper that would say something that I thought I ought to be saying and, and realizing the huge volume of books that I was going to have to read. And I couldn't do more than a few of them. And then he would sit down and we'd go through and say, well, on page two, it's an interesting idea, but had you not thought of such and such? And 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 then, um, well, but so-and-so says this, doesn't he? And and but, but Paul elsewhere says the following, and how does that square with what's going on in Galatians? And so these were all questions and pushbacks. It, it meant very kindly and supportively, but it meant that he, after each session like that, I would go away thinking, uh, he's not going to do that to me next time. I, I'm going to, you know, and I think this is probably the aim. And after about two years, um, 
something that he said to me was really positive, like, I really like it when you said such and such. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've hit the jackpot. This, <laughs> this is amazing. So I don't think he wasn't intending to be cruel or difficult. It was just, you've written something. We're adults. We're discussing it. Here it is. But then um, about when I'd been with him for about two years and had done all sorts of things and had to apply to have the, my status elevated in, in, in Oxford terms, you start off as a BPhil student and you have to get um, bumped up to the DPhil status, which was what had happened. But I then applied for a research fellowship at one of the Oxford colleges. And I knew that this was a long shot because they had about 300 applicants for about three of these fellowships. And he was my principal referee. Mm. So when I then uh, was awarded the fellowship, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, Cad must have written me a pretty darn good reference. And and that was the kind of, uh, oh, I think maybe he likes what I'm doing. And then gradually it became apparent that he really did. <laughs> but he, he wasn't going to say that uh, off the top, presumably to stop me being big-headed or think that I'd got it all made or whatever, because I obviously still had a long way to go. Um, but then I wouldn't say we ever really became close friends. He was very busy. He was running Mansfield College for, for some of that time. And then very sadly, um, not long after I'd finished my doctorate, he died in his mid-60s, quite mm. suddenly. Mm. And that's a shame because I would have loved to have got to know him as, as an older man, as it were. Um, and we, we might have become real friends. But so I, I, I revere his memory. He was a great man, a fine scholar in all sorts of ways, even though I disagree with some of the things, some of the lines he took. But that's, that's inevitable and right and proper. Yeah. I mean, I mean, his, his take on New Testament theology, I still talk to my students about to this very very day in terms of oh, yeah. historical Jesus questions. And I got, oh, yeah. You know, your interactions with him remind me of, of my exchange with Howard Marshall when I wrote him about <laughs> the initial topic I wanted to do. He wrote me back and said, here are two German works you need to look at to see if they will help you narrow what you're interested in. And I didn't know a lick of German at the time. So, oh my, oh my. So, so I was here going, well, I think I'm a little behind, you know, and, okay. uh, and, and went from there. So, well, right, great. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, um, so let's talk about your love for Paul. I'm working my way, obviously, to Romans, but let's yep, talk about yep. your love for Paul. How did how did Paul get into the mix? Well, when I was an undergraduate, I was a very active member of the Oxford Christian Union, the student um, evangelical Christian body, which was very lively and uh, and and full of interesting people. Um, it wasn't narrowly evangelical in the sense that the word might be used today, it, but uh, it was a very sort of British evangelical. And uh, all sorts of topics would come up. And I remember in my middle year, I think as an undergraduate, um, somebody coming and speaking to the Christian Union who was saying that actually Christian discipleship means leaving behind Romans 7 and getting into Romans 8. In other words, uh, you should no longer be having moral failure in your life. Uh, mm. If you really have the Spirit dwelling in you, uh, that wouldn't be happening anymore, and you need to find uh, the new spiritual level. And it was like the old holiness movement from the 1890s and the early years of the 20th century. And then it was coming in as well on the back of the then very new Pentecost and charismatic movement. We're talking late 60s, early 70s here. And because, try as I might, I found myself still frequently as uh, an enthusiastic Christian, still saying the evil that I would not is what I find myself doing and the good that I want to do, I seem to miss out, miss out on. I was then very much taking the same line, which I subsequently discovered Jimmy Dunn and Charles Cranfield had taken on Romans 7, that this is the normal Christian life and that Romans 7 and 8 sort of go together 
together as Christian uh, as Christian discipleship. So that was a major issue. And the other major issue that would hit us as students in the late 60s was the issue of Calvinism and predestination and so on. It was when the Manner of truth trust was at its height, I think. Mm. And so we were all debating about Romans 9 and, and how does it work? And does God really predestine some to salvation and others to damnation or what? Um, and so with those big questions in the back of my mind and assuming that I sort of knew we didn't call it the Romans road, but we had something similar, you know, you work through, well, you know, as well as I do, yep. um, sin, salvation, belief in Jesus, etc. Um, so I, I knew my way around Romans reasonably well, um, but with certain big, buzzy uh, topics. And it was with those in mind that I was then studying the text for myself when I was doing theology as my second degree. And then particularly when I was diving into doctoral studies, and I quickly found that if I thought there were just two options here, there were about 22 options, and that Romans went on being challenging and fascinating. And uh, fortunately, that was okay at an undergraduate level. I was still handling all these issues. And then when I started my graduate work and, and plunged in particularly to Romans 9 to 11, uh, all sorts of things happened and all sorts of changes took place. And uh, I, I went out one day and bought a large board, um, which I put up at the back of my desk, and I photocopied uh, the text of Romans in Greek, and I stuck Romans in Greek right across this board so that whatever I was reading, I had Romans in Greek as the backdrop, mm. and I got lots of different colored felt-tip pens, and I scribbled all over that for about two or three years mm. um, until I really I could feel the way that the argument of Romans worked and the way that Paul comes back to different themes, but from another angle. And and, and Romans is just the most extraordinary um, uh, work of art, uh, quite irrespective of, of its theological meaning. And so I, I kind of did a, uh, say I've done a deep dive into Romans eight here, but I did a deep dive into Romans and this was in the, in the mid seventies. And I still look back on those days with, with delight, but also with a, a measure of awe because I realized still how little I understood. Mm -hmm. I was feeling my way forwards. And that's when the, the so-called new perspective really kicked in because I was doing my best to try to find out how Romans and Galatians belonged together. Was it a development? Had Paul changed his mind about the law? How did that work, et cetera, et cetera. And it was one day um, actually here in the same street where we now live, curiously, mm. Hollywell Street in the middle of Oxford. We were living just six doors down the road, and this is 40 years ago. And I, when I was working through again and got to Romans 10.3, when Paul says that they are seeking to establish, seeking a righteousness which is of their their own righteousness rather than uh, submitting to God's righteousness and realizing this is not the Jews being legalistic, trying to do good moral works to earn their status of moral goodness. This is a righteousness which is for Israel and Israel only and keeping Gentiles out. And Paul's whole point is that it's for, for everybody. And I remember coming back home to our house just down the road here and, and sitting up in bed and reading Galatians in Greek and thinking, this is going to work. This is going to work. This makes sense of Galatians in a way that I'd not seen before. Mm. And I think we're onto something here. And it was the following year that Ed Sanders published Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And though he wasn't saying what I was saying, he hadn't seen that point, he kind of opened up the whole field of different ways of reading Second Temple Judaism. And it was just around then that Gezer Vermesh was re-editing Shura's work on the history of the Jewish people in the time of Jesus Christ. It was just then that various other major works 
books on Second Temple Judaism were coming out, and I just plunged in scrolls, pseudepigrapha, the lot. And the more I went at the Jewish world, the more the Paul that I was discovering made sense. And that's that's really sorry, it's a longer answer than you were expecting, but that's how it all began. No, that's actually a great answer. It actually makes a wonderful segue into into the book uh, on um, you know I call it taking a deep dive into Romans into the heart of Romans and uh, the one of the things that strikes me about about what you emphasize is this corporate dimension of the way of reading the the New Testament particularly Paul that we're not thinking about each individual so much as we're thinking about large entities that are are present in the reading and intended in the reading. If we think individualistically, it's only because Paul is a representative of a kind of person who belongs to a kind of group, if I can say it that way. Um, yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yes. Yeah, hmm. and so um, I noticed at the beginning of, of, your, of your book, you make the point, you make three points, and I'll let you take them in whatever order you want. This is not about me or my salvation. It's a much bigger corporate concern. It's the story of Israel, but it's the story of Israel that leads to a Messiah who's in the middle of everything that's happening. And it's and, and this is where I hope we spend the bulk of our time is it's not about some heavenly ethereal existence to come. It's about this world. So uh, take that in whatever yeah. order you want. Okay. Well, uh, let me just um, quickly go through the, the 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 first one was the individual or corporate right. thing. And I mean, sometimes people take fright at this and they think, oh, this is a, a kind of a liberal move to say it's not about whether I have faith or not. It's just something much larger. And I want to say, no, if Paul found anyone in one of his churches who said, oh, I'm just sliding along. Everyone else believes it. I'm not sure whether I do. Paul would sit him down uh, and, and make sure that the gospel was eyeball to eyeball with them personally. Um, but having said that, yes, the larger issues that Paul is dealing with are the big cosmic ones about how in the Messiah, Jew and Gentile come together. And this, I'm kind of tracking with Ephesians at this point. Yeah, exactly. This is the sign to the powers of the world that God is God, that Jesus is Lord. And so you get it at the end of the, the theological argument in Romans, in Romans 15, where he says that, so that you may with one heart and voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, and that that is the sign that Isaiah 11 has kicked into operation, which is the messianic passage about the root of Jesse who rises to rule the nations, and in him the nations will hope. And this is, Paul wants the church in Rome to be what I call a small working model of new creation, mm -hmm. that when people come together gladly, freely in faith, obviously individuals, but that's not the point he's making, that across the cultural and ethnic boundaries and across the gender gap and across the social gaps, etc., when they're all together worshipping, this is the sure sign of hope. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace so that may, you may abound in hope. This is the sign to the world that the new creation is on the way. So that's that's really, really important. And, you know, everybody, it's like rowing in a boat, since we're in Oxford, that's what people do here <laughs> and in, a, in a rowing age. Um, you're all doing it together, and you must all do it together, but there is no room for slackers. Everyone has their own particular oar to pull. So it's it's both the corporate and the individual, but he's emphasizing the corporate. The second thing is about Messiah and Israel. And so much of Paul's theology is about Jesus as Israel's Messiah, summing up 
the people of God and their destiny in himself. Drawing, of course, on Isaiah 40 to 55 and the servant picture there, who is both a Messiah and Israel uh, and, and so on. It's, it's a kind of a fluidity between the, the, the one and the many there. Um, and for Paul, I, I've emphasized this because so often today, and you'll be aware of this, there are people who talk about Paul within Judaism and mm -hmm. think that Paul thought that you could have uh, Jews are all right to stay as Jews. They don't need to convert and become Christians, but Christianity is fine for Gentiles. And that's complete nonsense because for Paul, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Mm -hmm. And if you said to a, a first century Jew, the Messiah is here, it would make no sense to say, but it really doesn't matter whether you want this Messiah or not. You just carry on the way you were. No, if God has sent his Messiah, this is the point around which Israel is being regrouped, regathered, reshaped, fulfilled. And so it's not a matter of then the Jews being shunted off into a siding. It's about Israel being enlarged to include exactly as Isaiah had said, exactly as the Psalms had said, exactly as God promised to Abraham. What's Paul quoting again and again? The Abraham cycle the um, the Psalms and Isaiah to say this was always God's intention to enlarge the family of Abraham to include the Gentiles so Messiah and people of God so th those are your first two um, now sorry I've already just the lost third the third, third was uh, it's it it's not about some ethereal existence in the future it's about oh, this yeah, world yeah. yeah. That this is, I mean, you will know my book, Surprised by Hope, which is probably my best known book in, mm -hmm. in America, I think, at the moment. I've got a sequel, which I've been trying to write for the last two or three years. But I, last year, I had long COVID, and I've had all sorts of medical problems on the top of that. And that's my excuse for why it's still sitting in piles of paper behind me on the desk here. Mm. But the point is this, most Christians today in the Western world, and most non-Christians as well, think that the point of Christianity is for my soul to go up to heaven when I die. Actually, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the point is that God always intended, the Creator God always intended to come and live with his people. The strapline at the end of Revelation isn't the dwelling of humans is with God, it's the dwelling of God is with humans. And the New Testament gospel, the four uh, gospel, canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of how Israel's God came back at last to dwell with his people. And the way Luke tells the story of the Spirit, uh, Acts 2, is the Spirit coming and filling the house and the people, which is like a temple scene. This is Yahweh returning to Zion. And it's all about God coming and dwelling in and with and through us. So then, so much of the New Testament, which we have read as though it's really about how do I get out of here and go off somewhere else is actually about, yes, you are going to be rescued. When you die, God will look after you. And eventually when he makes his new creation, you will be raised from the dead. But the resurrection from the dead is not so that you can loll around and do nothing for all eternity. It's very clear. Paul says in Romans 5.17, those who receive the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb so that we can be the royal priesthood. We have task. And the good news in Romans 8, not least, is that the vocation starts now, that we are debtors to God to live now in the present time as ourselves, individually and corporately, the small working models of new creation. And that's really the heart of so much for Paul and Romans, Ephesians, etc. 
um, that it, it's about the people that we are at the moment being already a sign to the world that Jesus is Lord. And this comes out of the strong theology of the resurrection of the body of Jesus, plus the strong theology of the Holy Spirit, that this is not designed as, oh, well, now we have the clue to how you can be good Christian Platonists and leave earth and go to heaven. In fact, the word heaven hardly occurs in Romans. And when the word heaven does occur in Romans, it isn't talking about the place where God's people will go when they die. And likewise, we may be going to get to this, the notion of being glorified. So many Christians, so many of the great commentators have assumed that when Paul talks about glorification, he simply means going to heaven and perhaps shining like an electric light bulb. That's not the point. As in John, the glorification is the being set in authority over the world. It goes back to Psalm 8. Um, the humans uh, are made little lower than the angels to be crowned with glory and honor with all things put in subjection under their feet. So there's a whole raft of stuff coming through there, which is about the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's about the spirit coming to dwell within us to make us already the people God wants us to be. Obviously, that issues in suffering and in issues in the prayer of groaning, which Paul talks about in Romans 8. But it's that vocation, which we've so often missed out, partly because as good Protestants, we're frightened of doing anything that might seem to be trying to please God. No, the pleasing of God has been done by Jesus. Let's not make any bones about that. Jesus has done what Jesus has done, as a result of which we are now called to be conformed to the image of the Son, Romans 8, 29. Now, I could go on about this all night. Yeah, I, I can tell. That. I feel like I hit an on button. Anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> so. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. So, um, so there are two strands I want to pick up in what you've said, and uh, I'll do it in reverse order of the way probably we ought to talk about it. But you talked about the connection to Ephesians. I just gave a chapel message to the seminary here in which I talked about God's multifaceted and unconventional wisdom. In oh, out of great. Ephesians yes. three ten, you know, which yep. is making your point. We're supposed to shine yep. before the principalities and powers, and yep. and what shines is this radical idea that Jew in the first century, that Jews and Gentiles, who would be estranged groups, you could hardly think of more estranged groups in the first sure. century, are going to. God says, "I'm going to make you family." And absolutely, and I think that is at the actually the center of most of the New Testament. That cosmic yep. Yep. reunion that pulls us back together. And then here's the second strand that takes us back to actually Genesis one, yep. 
that God yep. created humanity so that we would subject the earth. And then my line is, we're all designed to be hummers. We were supposed to so reflect the presence of the image of God that creation hummed, that it was functional. And we cooperated and collaborated with one another in such a way that creation would hum and be functional. And of course, what we see is the dysfunction that sin has introduced into that and the competition that sin has introduced into that. But when we when we when we manifest this reconciliation and genuinely experience it and begin to work together and appreciate one another in the process, we actually we actually replicate what God was originally asking of us when He created us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's frustrating that we haven't spent more time together over the last twenty or thirty years because we're clearly on the same page there. And and likewise, I go back to Genesis 1, and I've learned so much from people like Richard Middleton and John Walton and others who've written about Genesis 1 and about the image as what I call, um, this is my way of doing what you're doing with the humming thing, I think, um, the angled mirror. And I explained to students, it's like a mirror that, that cuts across like this, reflecting God into the world and reflecting the world back to God so that humans are called to be the wise stewards of creation, reflecting the loving care and wisdom of God into the world, and also called to be, this is the royal priesthood bit, to be reflecting the praises of creation back to the Creator, and also, especially in Romans 8 and in the Psalms, the laments of creation back to the Creator. And so, uh, if that's the human vision, then, of course, you get it in Colossians 3, where we are renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. You get it at the end of 2 Corinthians 3. You get it, as I've already quoted in Romans 8.29. Um, you probably know, by the way, one of my graduate students, um, uh, Haley Gorenson-Jacob, um, wrote her thesis, I thought I had it here, it's over on the shelf, um, conformed to the image of the sun. Hmm. She did a lot of work on the use of uh, Psalm 8 in Romans 8, in a way which I hadn't followed through before. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was landing on 829 as, as summing up that vocation. And I, I owe a lot to her work, which I've tried to acknowledge in a couple of places in this book. Um, so that, yeah, Genesis 1, and then you see, for me, this goes back, you probably know this from other bits of stuff that I've written, but when I was quite young, somebody told me I should read Umberto Casuto's commentary on Genesis, mm. An old Jewish scholar, yes, um, a big commentary on Genesis, and it was Casuto who pointed out, which I'd never seen before, that the promises to Abraham reflect the commands to Adam, as though Abraham is being the new Adam, and that's one of those things. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it, and it is, of course, there in the rabbis, etc. You know, God says, "I'll make Adam first, and if he goes wrong, I'll send Abraham to sort it all out," etc., etc., etc. So then, when you're reading Romans, and here is Abraham in chapter 4, and the promises to Abraham are fulfilled, and then you turn over the page, and it's a sort of QED. Therefore, we now have the Adam story fulfilled at last. Um, and, and as you say, it's precisely in the coming together, and I would say, Allah, Ephesians, the coming together of heaven and earth in chapter 1, mm -hmm. the coming together of Jew and Gentile in chapter 2, the coming together of man and woman in marriage in chapter 5. Mm -hmm. I see all these things as contributing to that lovely verse you quoted from 310, um, that amazing Greek phrase, the hey, polypoikolos sophia tu theou, the, the many-colored, many-splendid wisdom of God. Um, and, and that, you know, I wonder if you feel this living where you do, and I certainly do in Britain, that this is a message that our churches in the West 
just have not thought about. Uh, it's exactly um, where I mean, it's where it's yeah. it's actually the dedication of my life the last ten years to oh, actually encourage yeah. churches to think through what it means to manifest this reconciliation, which automatically is a contrastive message to what we see going on in the world today. I mean, of it course, just comes with the territory, and so you don't even have to. Once it's seen, you don't have to write about it because it stands out so much, and yet we don't pursue Absolutely. it. And Absolutely. so. And yeah, yeah. and so, uh, th- yeah. This is I like I say. The more I read the New Testament, more I feel like if this isn't the theme of the New Testament, it's pretty close. <laughs> and pretty close, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and so, uh, I'm actually going to give a lecture in Australia. I'm doing the uh, Henry Morris lecture at Ridley College oh, in, this summer, good, and good. it's going to be on this. And so, oh, great, great. Um, uh, because I just think this is, and, and what it does is it gives an ethical bullseye for the church to pursue yeah. in yeah. terms of yeah. thinking through yeah. what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's great. That's great. So Ridley College, you're going to be hanging out with my friend Mike Bird. Yes, um, Mike Bird and yeah. and, and uh, Brian Rosner, who's a former student Brian, of mine. Yeah. yeah so um, oh, okay, okay. But Mike and I are just finishing off. In fact, we're proofreading at the moment a book called Jesus and the Powers, which is a kind of a, 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 a the beginnings of a Christian political theology from the New Testament and elsewhere, and that's coming out in in three months or so, which is exciting. But um, the, the, you see, I, I have this theory, and I'd love to know what you think of it. That, that the Protestant Reformation was so keen on discovering justification by faith over against what it saw as the Catholic justification by works, that that became a very individual thing. How is your soul going to get to heaven? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they were very keen, rightly, on having the Bible and the liturgy in their own languages. Mm-hmm. So, yes, excellent. But that meant that by the end of the 16th century already in London, you had a French church and a Portuguese church and a Polish church and a this and a that and the other. And then we exported all these to the new world, of course, often with their own different theologies. And at no point did anyone say, hang on, if the Bible is our authority, we're missing a trick here because we're supposed to be worshipping together precisely across these boundaries. But we were so keen on doing our own thing in our own cultures that that theme has been missed out in Protestant Christianity for the last 400 years. So um, then you get, of course, um, both in Britain and in America um, and in South Africa and so on, people who think it's better to keep uh, different ethnicities apart and who try to argue that from the Bible when the whole of the New Testament is saying, no, no, this is the time when the new thing happens. Yeah, the, the sad thing really. about that is is that on the one hand, you, it's the differentiation that shows the reconciliation, but you can't have yeah, the reconciliation yeah. unless you're all together, you know? Yeah, that's right. And, that's and, right. and, and so it's both layers. It's, not, you know, it's like a lot of theology that gets us into trouble. I tell my students, sometimes we ask either or questions that are actually both hands. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and if yep. we and if we would learn how to do that better, we, our theology yeah. would be better. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we yeah. we create problems I mean, I'm, for I'm, ourselves. I'm, yeah, I'm very much aware of the danger, and I, there's a, a black woman theologian pointed this out to me some years ago, and she said, she heard all that I was saying, and then said, nevertheless, when I hear a white man saying that, 
what I hear you saying is you all now get to be honorary white males. And I said, no, that's absolutely not the point. How can I say what needs to be said without giving that impression? And that that's a real toughie. Yeah, it is. And it, it and that's part of the work. You know, part of the work of the New Testament is it's bringing yep. these two very distinct cultures together to try and make yep. them one family. And they're having to figure each other out in the process. Yes. And, and that's not hence, easy. Hence Romans. Hence Romans 14 and 15. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly where that is. Well, let me, man, I've got yeah. so many different directions I want to go. <laughs> let me let me say one more thing about image, because this is, a, I really like your phrase, image reflectors, that's in this book, that we're designed to be image reflectors and that that's part of our vocation. The way I like to say it is we're made in the image of God to image God, to image his character, to image his, his heart to people and to show what he's really about. And so, uh, again, I, I, think, I, I think a lot of the world that doesn't know the gospel is actually searching for location, and they don't have it. Uh, and, interesting. Yep. And, and so, uh, and so, I tell people, why is it that the world tries to define its own identity if it's not connected to the church? It's because they don't have any alternative. Yeah, yeah. I and, think that's right. And and, yeah. and and so and you hear it in the language. You say I'm I'm trying to find myself. <laughs> you know, yes, there's yes, a know, part of me that's humorous. It goes. I thought you were with me all along. You know, but still, it's <laughs> you, you know. But that is, of course, as Harold Bloom said, Gnosticism is the default American religion. Yes, much more so in America than here. But but discovering who I really am, as opposed to what my body may be outwardly appearing to be, or whatever, or my my social or cultural background. No, there's a real me inside somewhere and it's got to, and and from that fount flow all sorts of nonsenses as far as i can see exactly right but i but i say it's if you don't have a sense of location in who you are that's what you're yep. looking for i mean it's you're a, looking for absolutely it, it's the yep. natural it's the natural default if you're not going to have a sense of location so being understood yep. to be made in the image of god is pretty important let me deal with another thing that um sure. that uh, I think you raised it's really profound, and that is we rule, but we rule being able to stand in the place of suffering and lament. Uh, yeah. I, I think that is a – it's in the middle of the book, and I just thought, yeah. man, this is an interesting idea. So talk about that a little bit. Well, um, I suppose – Across the New Testament, the clearest place where that is stated is, is John's Gospel, where the whole climax of the sequence of signs and the, the, the point about Jesus being lifted up and glorified, where it's a double entendre, he is both glorified in the sense of being magnified and praised and lifted up on a cross, for goodness sake, which is, you know, the most horrible way of killing somebody that they knew. Um, and John is telling us all the way through, I take it, I'm not a Johannine specialist, but that's my, my understanding, that actually this is how Jesus is taking charge of the world um, by uh, dying for the sins of the world, by fulfilling the mission which God had lined up for his own second self, if you can put it like that, for the word made flesh. This is what he came to do. And so from then on, he has defeated the powers of darkness. It says, you know, if I am lifted up from the, the earth, I will draw all people to myself. There you've got all people again. So now is the ruler of this age cast out. This is very much John 12, but then leading into the whole crucifixion narrative. When I then come across to Paul, I find, um, particularly in Romans 8, the sense that this can, being conformed to the image of the Son, this is the image of the crucified Messiah. And 
And that whole passage from verse 18 through to verse 28 is about the groaning of creation, the groaning of the church within creation, and the groaning of the spirit within the church. And then Paul says, the one who searches the hearts, that is God the Father, knows the mind of the spirit. And that's how we are conformed to the image of the Son. The, the, because the, the dialogue between the Father and the Spirit is taking place in us as we lament, as we lament. I mean, goodness knows, as we look around the world at the moment, there's so much to lament, so much horrible stuff happening. And when we then allow our own personal laments, of which we all have some, where some of us have a lot, um, when, when we allow those laments to resonate together, then Paul is saying, we are being conformed to the image of the Son. In other words, uh, exactly as in Galatians 2, 19 following, I am crucified with the Messiah. This is who I am. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but the Messiah lives within me, etc. But being crucified, being co-crucified with the Messiah, obviously that comes out of Romans 6, but it's this sense that he has won the victory by going to the cross to bear and share the sin and the pain and the, 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 the shame and everything of the world. That's how the victory was won, and it's how the victory then has to be implemented. Just as in First Peter, you know, First Peter writing to people who thought that because Jesus had died, they were going to have a free pass. And Peter is saying, no, 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 you, you, are, you are sharing the sufferings of the Messiah. That is how what was uniquely achieved on the cross is implemented in the world. And so, I mean, I don't like suffering. I don't like the idea of being called to suffer. The suffering by definition is what we don't like happening to us. But that is how we go through it as people who are called to share the victory of Christ by sharing his suffering. And, and that, for me, is the, the, the what I've sometimes called the dark heart of Romans 8, mm -hmm. uh, Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. You know, what's interesting about that is, is that it, if, if, if it's properly appropriated, it seems to me, it creates an empathy that you have for sin and a deep awareness of your need for God. At the same yeah, time, and uh, I tell people, you know, when you're sharing with someone who doesn't share your faith, you need to remember that's where you were at one time, that your back was turned to God. And and if you will approach the conversation that way, it will be a different kind of conversation if you feel like I've got to crush this person in some sense or, yeah, of yeah. the term. Yeah. So, uh, so this idea of being able to identify with the pain and fallenness of the world and then how do I react to it, you know, I, I like to shorten John 3.16 to God so loved the world that he gave and just uh, leave it yeah. there okay. and just leave okay. it there because it shows yeah. the yeah. heart of God in why he gave his yeah. son. Yeah. And, and that's very much Romans 5, of course, out of which Romans 8 flows. And, and one of the things you, you'll have picked it up is that I, I read the um, odd little phrase in Romans 8.28 um, that uh, those who love God, God, <laughs> as referring back to the previous verse in which he's talked about the groaning of the Spirit within us and the Father listening, because in 5.5 5, he said that the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And I think he's saying that when we are groaning like this and the Father is listening, we are in that relationship of love. God is loving us and we are learning to love and trust him and that it's God works with those who are doing that 
to bring about good in the world. And you'll have picked up that I have this revisionist reading of 828, which again, I got from some friends who nudged me into saying, come on, Tom, read the Greek, uh, remind yourself what it actually says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I tell my students, nothing beats observing the Greek text, nothing, nothing at all. So uh, Absolutely. Um, so let me, let me go to one other theme. I think we have yeah. time maybe for one more. Um, and that is um, the ascension. I, I think the ascension is oh. the... Is the lost act of Jesus, if I can say it that way, a lost act of God for Jesus. And the the way I like to say it is, is that we, you know, when we come to Easter, we tend to we tend to say, you know, the pastor walks out, at least what happens in the States, is the pastor walks out and says, He is risen, and the crowd says back, and he is risen indeed. And so we think about, mm-hmm. you know, the new life that we have, which is tremendous and is obviously a point of Easter. Mm-hmm. But the other point of Easter that I think is as, if not even more important, because it's the supposition for being able to say that is, is that Easter is God's vindication of the options of what the cross represented. Because Jesus either hung on the cross because he was the intended exalted figure of God or because he was a blasphemer. Those were the two options that put him on the cross. And, and of course, the Jewish leadership in Rome said, oh, he's, he's, a, he's a pretender. He's not the real thing. And the resurrection was God's vote in that dispute. And the idea that he sits at the right hand of God, sharing in the rule and the benefits of God, is making yeah. that point. And I sometimes think we miss on Easter the opportunity to drive that point home on that yeah. special day when there are a lot of people in church who yeah. otherwise wouldn't well, be in church. Yes, of course. Of course, in my tradition, we keep a day called Ascension Day, mm-hmm. which is forty days later. And uh, technically, we are supposed to keep Easter as a forty-day festival, all the way from um, Easter to Ascension, and then you have Pentecost a week later. I know that not all churches keep Ascension Day, but um, it's it's one of my favourite moments in the church year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some great hymns about it. And I've often preached on the end of Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And I've said, you know, many evangelicals like to think of it as the Great Commission, go into all the world, etc. Well, fine, but that only makes the sense it does, because all authority has been given to him. Um, and that's that's an already, that's not will be given, that's has been given in his resurrection, and then his being seated at the Father's right hand. And uh, that's, that's obviously such an important New Testament theme. And uh, it's kind of implicit in Paul, but it's then obviously explicit in that last great paragraph that he was, he died. Yes, he was rather, he was raised and he is at the right hand and he intercedes for us. Mm-hmm. So that sense that he is ruling the world. Um, and uh, I've often said in preaching and in, in chatting with people, we are quite happy to think about him having all authority in heaven, we've hardly really begun to figure out what it means that Jesus has all authority on earth. What mm-hmm. does that look like? Uh, what are we talking about there? But but part of that then is that he is interceding for his people, praying for us so that we may be able to be his faithful witnesses. To That's be a vocation to... idea. Yeah, exactly. To be the small working model of new creation so that even if it doesn't make any sense to people, um, you know, the, the reason that early Christianity spread was not because of great ideas being passed from one brain to another, whether it was Irenaeus or Tertullian or Augustine or whoever. It was because ordinary folk on the street were living the Jesus life and people looked and said, didn't know that was possible. Didn't know you yeah. could live that way. 
And that's that's the real ah the real emphasis for me, the vocational emphasis. And this is not vocation or salvation. Of course it is about salvation. Romans is all about salvation. But salvation is about new creation, and new creation begins when Jesus comes out of the tomb on Easter morning and pours out his spirit upon his followers and is exalted to the right hand of God. We're on the same page. You know, I tease people. Yeah. I actually did another message. It was Romans, uh, Ephesians 2 and following, and I said, uh-huh. you know, we all know the Protestant creed, salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I say, keep reading. What is that salvation for? (laughs) Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's the first good work? First good work is what gets evidenced through the new man. You know, and so I say, if you ask what salvation is for, you don't separate this calling from salvation. It's actually part of the point of it. Yes. Yes, and the good works, I mean, because we've been so hung up about good works and good works can't justify you, people read Ephesians 2.10 as though good works there simply means, so now you get to behave morally properly. But actually, good works, as we know from, say, the letter to Titus um, in the New Testament, good works is about followers of Jesus doing things in the wider community that make people say, my goodness, that was great. We're so glad to have these people on our street. You know, the good works, whether you've got lots of money to splash out on 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 good works of that sort, or whether it's just being kind to people and rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. These are the good works. And I, I love that line. Again, we're coming back to Ephesians. It's autu garesmen poema. We are his workmanship. And the word poema being the word from which we get poem. Mm-hmm. We are God's artwork. He's putting us in the world to display what his purpose for true humanity is all about. Yeah, the church is oh, God's great we, art museum. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Maybe maybe we should write a book together, Daryl. That then, would be fun. Day, that would be fun well, to well, do. We when we haven't got anything else to do. Exactly, exactly <laughs> right. Well, as I tease people, I'm off the streets and the crime rate's down. So, uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, Tom, just a real pleasure uh, to just exchange with you on on Romans 8 and Romans and your love for Paul and your commitment to the New Testament. And what I love about what you do is there is, a, and, and maybe this is not the best way to say it, but there is an ethical heartbeat to what you write in terms of how the church shows its theology. And I think that that is central to what the church desperately needs today in terms of being able to display what it means to be an image reflector, just to use more language that you've presented. So thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you, Daryl. It's very good to see you. And again, apologies, I was late on, but I'm so glad you were able to come back into the studio. That's yeah. great. Well, we'll have to do more of this. This is fun, and I really have enjoyed it. And, and like I say, when I when, one of these days when I get back to Oxford, we'll sit down and just have a long, Indeed. long chat about Indeed. all kinds of things because this I, I can tell this is a kindred spirit conversation. Absolutely. Let me know when you're coming through town. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. And thank you for thank joining you very us. Much. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us on The Table. We'll hope you join us again soon. If you want to see more episodes of The Table podcast, it's voice.dts.edu slash table podcast. And we hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.